G'day, I'm Sean, and welcome to the Car Expert Podcast. We're back again, another exciting one, actually, and we're going to respond to some of the things that you guys have been saying about us on the internet lately. <laughs> nice things or mean things? Uh, it depends on which side of the fence you sit on, which, which we will get to shortly. Um, <laughs> as you can probably tell, Scott's here. How you doing? Yeah, hello, interrupting Sean yet again. What have you been driving this week, Scott? I have been driving a Cupra Formentor VZX, oh. which is essentially a Golf R dressed up to look like a Lamborghini Urus. Yes, it's got a bit of a lift on it, and it's sort of like... Yeah. Semi-SUV. It's a really fun little car. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, they actually make a cool sound. I don't know whether it's real, but they do make an interesting little sound. The turbo whistle's real. The fake five-cylinder thing it does in Cupra mode is very fake, and I could do without that, but I do. I like the turbo noise, and I like how it's got an Akropovich exhaust. It makes some really angry pops and bangs. So it's trying to be an RS3. Yeah, but on a budget. It's on 65 budget. grand as opposed to 110. <laughs> and James is here as well. How are you doing, James? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, man. You've been away. You've just come back from a launch. What have you been driving? Yeah, it was sort of like more of a staycation. It was in Melbourne. Oh. But I, I did join Kia for the launch drive of the updated Sorento, which is a very important car for them. And I can't tell you much about how it drives yet, but I am currently writing the review and we will have more to say later this week. And what else did you do with Kia over the last few days, James? Well, um, it's, <laughs> it's that time of year where Kia's everywhere because because it's the Australian Open and they've been the major partner for the Australian Open for quite a number of years. It's almost been two decades or something wow. now. Wow, that's a long time for a sponsor. Yeah, exactly right. And they keep on extending it. It's been a really great driver of you know, brand recognition. I think it's probably been a major factor for people to understand what the brand's about, what their cars are, and gets people into showrooms to ask about it because they probably sit on TV and think it looks good. So yeah. So a bit of trivia for you guys. Which car brand did Kia replace? Because I was looking at some old Oz Open footage and I saw a logo I didn't expect to see on the net? Toyota. No? I know the answer. Go on, what's the answer then? It was Ford. It was it? Ford, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Of all the places Ford would have shown up. Yeah, so Kia took over from one of the best known brands in Australia with that sponsorship and it now either comes close to or outsells Ford in Australia pretty regularly. That's, yeah, well, Ford don't sell nearly as much as Kia do these days, even in terms of lineup or volume, I guess. So. Except Definitely the Ranger. Got, we've got fewer cars, but the Ranger is a, a yeah. thorn in Kia's side, I would imagine. Yes, well, Kia, you know what you have to do to beat the Ranger. So and we know it's coming. Bring us a you. We're 12 months away from that, so. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about things that are happening here now. So recently, you might have seen, if you've been uh, anywhere on the internet uh, around Car Expert or even Channel 7, that we recently did a drive from Melbourne to Sydney in a BMW i7 M70 and the its petrol twin, the BMW 740i. Um, Safe to say that we upset a lot of people with that. Um, yeah, pretty much everyone yeah, who basically. has feelings about electric cars has feelings about this drive, which is really interesting because all of the people who aren't in the car world I've spoken to about it, my parents included, they saw it on 7 News, thought it was quite an interesting test of what an electric car costs to drive using public infrastructure on a long road trip. I think the other side of it is that there's a lot of people who are very pro-internal combustion and just enjoy arguing with electric car owners who are obviously using this as proof that electric cars have no future, which is not true. There's a lot of very sensitive electric car owners who are upset that we didn't do the test the same way they would have done the test. Now, this is a, this is a funny thing because the reason this test came about is, oh, I think it was last year before, late 2022, we did a drive from Adelaide to Sydney in an EV6 and a diesel Audi Q5. Uh, to see whether the Audi could make it the whole way on one tank and then how much of a pain it would be with the EV6. Everyone got upset that we didn't use the same car, so we've used the same car. And right. everyone's found something else to be upset right. about. So 740i and i7, they're not equivalent when it comes to power, but ultimately they are built on the same chassis. They're built by the same people, they're the same size. There's a 600 kilo weight difference because of the big batteries in the i7, but 
Although we could have done this with a smaller car like an MG ZS and a ZS EV, or even a Kona Electric and a Kona, the BMW has a really long usable range, which means that rather than having to stop every couple of hundred Ks, the goal was to only have to stop once, is my understanding. Once, maybe twice if we needed to. Yeah. So the, the logic was this car theoretically should be best placed to do this trip with as few stops as possible. In reality, it didn't quite play out like that, as you know, obviously, given you were there. Yes. So I guess the thing is, if you've got to disregard the price of the cars, and, and the cars themselves are, are somewhat irrelevant to the whole test. Right. It's more of a science experiment. Exactly. And I, I, hopefully down the road, there'll be a few more options like this, where you can buy an electric, for example, like Sorento and a petrol Sorento and do the exact same test, and you're not restricted to a $300,000, $350,000 limousine. Um, I guess the interesting thing was the result that we got out of it was that there was a $14 difference between the two in terms of the cost to do the trip and that the petrol car actually came out cheaper. So, Scott, I know you've been quite involved <laughs> in responding to comments and, and writing some opinion pieces, but I want to ask James a couple of questions about this if you don't mind. Okay, so, so straight off the bat, James, were you surprised by that result? I, I was in some ways. I think I was. I would have been interested to know the result either way. And I think that this kind of test is very dependent on what you're bringing on the test, because you know, given how big the battery in the i7 is, for example, that and, and how expensive public charging is getting these days, it just sort of amplifies the cost based on on that alone. But I was actually more surprised that it was so close, and the fact that the i7 managed to go quite far on highway driving given its size and everything like that. And I guess to sort of counter the argument about whether it should have been like something really cheap or whatever, the 7 Series is not just, you know, a baller's, you know, limo sort of thing. It's it's designed to be a, a long distance cross country tourer. And actually Joe Achilles, who joins you on the test, drove celebrities around in 7 Series for a living. And whenever I used to speak to him, he used to say how much he loved his 7 30D or 740D? 730D, I think. He yeah, because yeah. he's like, I could do, he said it in miles and I can't do that mathematics <laughs> in my head, but he, you know, basically it was doing 1,200 to 1,400 kilometres per tank. And, you know, when you put that into context of what you were doing on that test, yes, it's not necessarily between concert venues and award shows, but, you know, you're sort of accumulating that distance up in one thing and that's the kind of car that people would do that in. Why would you subject yourself to mm. that in, you know, an MG4, for example, that's perhaps not necessarily made for that cross-country touring? So... I, f I thought the, I was sort of like what your parents said, I found it a really interesting test and took it more of a this versus this and an equivalent of each rather than thinking, why the hell am I watching this $300,000 car <laughs> go a thousand kilometers? But I guess, you know, as we all sort of would have formulated that test in a similar way, as opposed to maybe the general public that may not have understood the premise from the beginning. And I think if you took the cheaper cars, like Kona's for instance, they probably would have cost more to do that trip because they are more city oriented cars. So highway is not their native place, but I think the results still would have come out similar sort of difference between the two, purely based on the, co the way that the electrical grid works, the way that the, the um, electrical providers cha um, charge you for charge, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, it's very complicated, but yeah, I think that it doesn't matter the cars. At, the, at this point in time, in the state of, like the, the state yeah. of the nation in Australia, it's, it's not gonna make a difference. No, I think the other thing worth bearing in mind on this test is um, this is not a reflection on what it costs to own an electric car all the time. And that, I know, was called out in the video and called out in the written, but it does seem to have been lost a little bit. Um, as much as we like to give Paul crap, you know, because he sits near us on the podcast and hear what we're saying, he owns an electric vehicle. I know lots of people who do. My grandma's got a Model 3, so I understand what her usage looks like. Paul understands what a normal daily usage looks like. 
EV owners aren't charging their cars on public infrastructure all the time. But ultimately, if you do want to do these long trips, and that is something people do. I drive to, from Melbourne to Falls Creek a couple of times every year, and there's a charger in Euroa. Um, there's also a charger at one of the big rest stops on the Hume. But for me to do that trip in an electric car without changing how I do it now, which is pop in the car on Friday night, stop for 15 minutes for Maccas and fill up with fuel, then keep driving, is just not possible. So that test I found really interesting to understand how the infrastructure works and what it would cost. And I think that's probably what's been lost is this, yes, we know for certain use cases EVs are better and we're not trying to take that away. Let's look at the other use cases and how they can be improved. Because if the rollout's going to continue, the whole experience needs to be good, not just certain circumstances for certain people at certain times. I think an interesting thing, and I'll throw this open to both of you to answer. Um, I don't know the exact number, but there are dozens of new EVs that are going to arrive on Australian shores this yeah. year. We know that. That's, that's a fact. That's, we can't dispute that. But is the infrastructure going to keep up with that? Because if there's going to... What was the increase? Well, it was I think overall, overall EV sales accounted for 7 to 8% yeah. of the total year's right. population of car sales. There may have been months where it was higher right. or lower. So if that keeps increasing year on year, and there's that many more electric cars that are coming to Australia, is the charging infrastructure going to be any better this time next year? Sure, I think that was the other interesting takeaway from your test, is that less necessarily about the total cost, but also about the convenience and the experience that you get, because you had charger outages or issues or bugs or whatever that, you know, a normal person for going to a fuel stop, you might have a pump that's out and there might be another one there that works straight away and you're gone in five minutes. If you've got a line of charges that are out of action and that's your last point of charge for X amount of kilometres, you're either stuck there or, you know, onto technical support and just adding time. And that's a level of convenience and extra thought that you might have to put into your trip that where if you're trying to get from one capital to another in the shortest amount of time, that's something to consider as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of whether the um, infrastructure is up to it, I think that we've already seen a lot of strains in the infrastructure, even in just the last couple of years when the overall mix of electric vehicle sales wasn't that high, where you know we've had a Paul experience at first hand when on the summer break he went into regional Victoria or something like that and just saw queues for ages for the four charges that were available at that that site and people waiting for hours like that's just not doable for a lot of people yeah i think we're at a stage now where most of the time the infrastructure is fine but only just and i say that because if you are buying an electric vehicle at the moment you can probably charge at home and that means most of the time well, as long as your house electricity is working your car can be charged i think what we are seeing though and, and what we're hearing from owners is that when things get busy, so that's the Christmas break, the Easter break, when you're going away on school holidays, if everyone is leaning on the public infrastructure at once, which obviously if lots of people are road tripping, they will be, that's when it's not up to scratch. And it's not even necessarily because there aren't enough charges, but it's because the charges that are there aren't fast enough necessarily. There's lots of slow charges or the super fast charges that are there that, you know, when you've got a car that can use them, are broken or aren't supplying full power or are randomly down due to other outages like Optus, which was mentioned in the video. It's not so much that there aren't enough places, although we are going to run into that problem eventually when lots of people are on the open road in these cars. It's more that when all of the EV owners who want to travel long distance arrive in the same charging space, between the lack of super fast chargers and also the way they're maintained at the moment, that's sort of when it falls down. And I'd be very surprised if we don't see that get worse before it gets better. I suppose the positive news is there is an awareness among the industry that that is one of the big hurdles that needs to be overcome to get people to move across. And there's a lot of smart people working on it. So hopefully if we have this chat in six or 12 months time, it's a different story.
And the other question I want to throw out to you guys, the way that you have to go about getting electricity out of the box and into your car can be quite daunting. Like we've come across people at charges that, you know, older people that have the money to afford, afford a yep. new electric car. Working apps can be quite challenging for them if they don't know what they're doing. Yep. But also just the fact that if you want to charge on a charge fox in the morning and then use an EV at night, you have to have two accounts, two apps, yep. your credit card linked to two things. Does that need to change? Does it need yeah. to be a simpler system, much like, I don't know, buying petrol? So in the UK, there's a set of laws around electric vehicle chargers, and it actually um, mandates how much uptime they have to have. So if the charger is broken more than a certain percentage of time, the operator gets fined. It's also about payments, and you need to be able to tap a credit card without providing any account details and pay for the electricity like you would pay for fuel. I think that's a really, really good framework because Obviously, these charge companies, if you are an EV owner who is always using public infrastructure, well, it makes sense to have an account because you can track it, you can have your credit card in there, it's very simple. But if you are the sort of person who only very occasionally uses this stuff, maybe you don't want to have your email address, your credit card, your phone number somewhere else online where, through no fault of your own, it might be hacked. And this is not unique to electric cars because obviously people have 7-Eleven accounts to get better petrol prices, for example. But I think the difference is at the moment, you need to do it to charge with some of these electric car providers. Not all of them. I know Ampol, Amp Charge, you don't need to because I did that recently. Um, but you still need an app. But it is definitely more prevalent there because, yeah, there is no option just to walk inside and pay a cashier. What do you, how do you feel about that, James? Uh, I agree 100%. You know, I've had my own issues trying to utilise the technology and I'm in the demographic that should be able to understand it all. And sometimes when things don't work how you expect it to, it's really frustrating and time-consuming. So, you know, when I went to Portugal last year with BMW for the launch of the i5, one of the new features that they were announcing was being able to have multiple subscriptions to different charging networks in the infotainment system and it basically automatically pays for you. And it takes the hassle out of trying to flick through apps and you know loading things up or depending on an internet connection and things like that. I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of that here already and that some of the brands have not been perhaps as quick to do that. And, you know, other than Tesla, there's not really any other manufacturer that's really gotten behind the public charging stuff and made it really easy for their owners. And also, it's just educating people on how it works. So yeah. some people will rock up, like you say, the, uh, some demographics that are not necessarily great with the technology or they're very new to it and the, that lack of understanding, it can be really off-putting. And I've had a lot of conversations with friends, family who either own EVs themselves or are thinking about it or know somebody that have. And they've been quite burned by that experience because there's just that lack of understanding to the point where they would actually revert back to internal combustion or a closed circuit hybrid so that you don't have to deal with that public charging infrastructure stuff. So I think it's just something that requires a bit more consumer education and also just a more well-rounded approach so that people can be comfortable all the time to use this kind of stuff. Um, I want to talk, ask you a question actually and put the tables a little bit because you were on this drive and you drove up in a Mitsubishi Outlander but you and Igor drove back from Sydney to Melbourne in the electric 7 Series. What was your experience of that like? Well, for me in the Outlander it wasn't too bad. I'm sure it was great. Um, Igor has a very different opinion towards yeah. it. So long story short, we, we decided rather than trying to run the battery down, we would charge a hop our way down. So yep. we used a better route planner, we figured out we need to stop here and here and, and that would get us home. We'd... Which was part of the feedback we got from a lot of people, yep. rather than charging to 100% and then going all the way to the end and charging again. Real EV owners do it a different way and we stop for 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there and we sort of, yeah, Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb following. Yeah, so the, the first problem was it, 
our first stop was Goulburn. It was a quick top up basically, and, and then on we go. We got there, all of the chargers were in use, including one guy who hadn't actually connected his car properly and it wasn't <laughs> doing anything, so we couldn't use that. Two of the chargers were ultra fast. One was fast, yeah. 50 kilowatts, and one was regular 20 kilowatt. Yeah. Um, one of the ultra fast chargers, which is what we needed for the i7, was in use by an MGZS who- Can't charge it more than they, 50 kilowatts. Exactly, now, yeah. but he pulled into there because there was no other spots left. Yeah. So it took us, it was, we were meant to stop for, I think it was only like 20 minutes or something. Mm. It was a really quick charge. And we ended up being there for nearly an hour, it was a long time. We had two helpings at McDonald's while we waited <laughs> and made friends with the guy that worked in the petrol station there. But that just took longer than it should have. And then when we got to uh, just south of Aubrey, which was the next stop, uh, the ChargeFox card that we were given with the BMW, because you get five years of free charging with the i7, just wouldn't work. <laughs> and we tried different charges, we tried different configurations, and just nothing would work. And in the end, Igor ended up setting up the app on his phone. Yeah which then still didn't work because that charger wasn't working for some reason, so we had to switch back to the other one. And it just took way longer. And I think if you take out the time we spent stopping to do filming stuff, which we had to do on the way back, the trip took us an hour and a half longer than it should have, yeah. like, even with the charging time allocated to it, just because just of things like that. And this was, I think it was a Wednesday or a Thursday. It wasn't school holidays. It was like in the middle of November. Yeah. None of these things like should have happened, but they did. And I think the thing is, if you're... You're a family and you've got an electric car because you have, you're a one-car family, which a lot of people are, and your nan lives in Burke and suddenly she gets sick and you have to race out there, that's going to make it really, really challenging to do, unless you want to swing by Hertz and pick up a Corolla and do it. Which I suppose in a lot of two-car households is an option, right? One has an electric, another has a petrol or a diesel, and you use each for the area they're best. If you can do that, that's great. But as we see more market saturation and obviously more car makers move to electric power only, which a number of foreshadowed, that option gets taken away if you're buying new cars. So I suppose to, to get out ahead of this idea that, well, if I have an electric car, I also have a petrol at the moment, or this is the way my family does it, therefore no one else needs to do it a different way. I get that there are a lot of individual solutions at the moment that involve other cars, that involve renting cars, that involve certain ways of planning, and they're all really clever. So good for those people who have worked that out. But a core part of why I love cars is because of the freedom they provide. And I like going on long drives and being able to just sort of go and stop at the pace that's required. And that isn't yet the same between electric vehicles and petrol or diesel vehicles on the open road. And that is really frustrating. I mean, I really want it to get to that point so I can seriously consider an electric car. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Betty James. Um, yeah, I don't think I really have much to add. It's pretty much the same train of thought there. Yeah, so. yeah. look, once they figure it out, it's going to be great. But yeah. until that yeah. point, it's... Uh, for the premiums you have to pay for an electric car, it's it's a bit rough. But do anyway, we need a sorry? Do we need a disclaimer down the bottom saying just to be clear, we like electric cars? Yes. Then please don't get angry. Yes, um, it's going to happen anyway. But let's talk about an electric car that we can't actually buy in Australia, <laughs> um, that would cost way too much if it was here, and that has a, probably the worst range of any electric car. It's the F-150 Lightning. Now, Ford make the F-150. We've talked about it on the podcast before, uh, but they make an electric version in the states, which. With a, there's a booster option that claims some hundreds of miles of range, but no one's been able to get that out of it, especially if they tow. But not to worry, because uh, Ford Performance and RTR vehicles have decided to get together and make a Raptor version of it called the Switch Gear, which is basically, they've taken F-150 Lightning, they've jacked up on big Fox suspension, given heaps of underbody protection, which you're gonna want on your big battery. Um, there's not really any more power output, I don't think, and not that it needs it, but basically it's just a Baja-ready electric truck. 
It's so, a yeah. road-going remote control car. Yes. Is what it looks like. Yes. It looks like one of those Tamiya trucks that you can run over potholes and jump and do all sorts of crazy stuff with. Um, it's a really cool concept. And one of the things that we are really excited for is this next wave of electric off-roaders, like the new G-Class, for example. Because electric motors, given you can have one on each wheel or one on each axle, can do stuff that a normal differential and set of differential locks can't. You can have 100% of the, the axle's power go to one wheel, for example, in a way that you just can't precisely control with a petrol or a diesel engine. So this seems like a really logical extension of the F-150 Lightning and a cool way for Ford to show off what's possible with its electric off-roaders when they do eventually come. Mm. Now, James, I'm sure you're, I know what you're going to say to this, but what do you think of an F-150 Lightning switchgear? I think it's really cool. I, I saw the photos and you know some of the specs is obviously like very close to what they do with the Raptor already and I think it's a, a good look into what the future could hold for this kind of drivetrain tech, which I think is something that a lot of people are quite concerned about, you know, save the weekend, you know, just use <laughs> a local <laughs> reference. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, right. So, you know, I think the with the current technology, you know, we're just talking about range and, you know, the Lightning having questionable range claims depending on what you're doing. And I feel like talking about charging infrastructure, whatever, when you're out in the wilderness doing Baja things and you're looking for a charger sticking out of the dirt or sand, I think that might be a problem. <laughs> and that might be something that perhaps these companies might need to communicate a little bit more around. But yeah, I think that's so cool. And the fact that it's so powerful and whatever, and it shows that you don't have to necessarily be restricted in terms of capability just because you've chosen a certain drivetrain type, I think that's really cool. That was a core part of what Rivian wanted to do. Uh, when they launched the R1T, and I, I watched during lockdown, a long way up, where they drove from the southern tip of South America all the way up to continental USA. Um, they used a prototype. They used a prototype. I think they had two. I think they had, they a had two R1. trucks, yeah. and then they were riding on electric motorbikes, yes. um, Harley-Davidson's. Um, but one of Rivian's promises was we want to build this network of chargers at trailheads, at popular off-roading and camping spots. So if you're a Rivian owner, charge up at home, get yourself to the trailhead, we'll then give you the power to get to where you want to go and back. I don't know that it's actually materialised yet, but it's something Jeep has talked about as well. There is a lot of potential if you can be the brand that can put electric car chargers close enough to the city that people can get there, but far enough out that they need to charge before they go exploring. Now, whilst this thing is <clears> a concept, do you get the feeling it's Ford sort of sticking the middle finger up a little bit at Tesla with their Cybertruck or their Cyber Beast or whatever they call it? Because it's claims that it can tow 11,000 pounds and it can go off-road anywhere and do all this stuff which we are yet to see it actually do. Do you feel like this is Ford going, eh, not so fast, Tesla? Uh, yes, maybe. I guess it's, <laughs> it's perhaps appealing to a different audience because I know, I know we've spoken previously about uh, F-150 or Ford buyers as an example and that they're quite rusted on, you know, F-150 buyers I feel like are pretty loyal, they'd probably be the type that go like, I had an old one, I want a new one sort of thing and that move to the electric drivetrain, I think a lot of rusted on F-150 buyers that were perhaps not that interested in the other offerings on the market were finally able to be like, oh it looks and feels like an F-150 and it's electric, I'll give it a go sort of thing. Uh, and I th and what Ford's doing is really leaning on, I think Tesla's really good at breaking the mold. And you're mm. like, you look at the Cybertruck, for example, it looks absolutely ridiculous. It's got crazy claims. Um, it will, 
pretend to be the 9/11, and it you know it's a it's a very different sort of way school of thought. Whereas you know you look at the F, this F-150 switch gear and also that uh, Mustang Mach-E rally car that they did recently, where it's like you know it literally just could be an off-the-shelf performance thing, like what they're doing with WRC Rally, for example, or you know what they're doing with Dakar. It's 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 much more conventional, and I guess appeals more to their existing audience or a more traditional automotive audience rather than people that perhaps aren't as interested in automotive that would be more inclined to look at what Tesla's doing. I think Ford is also prone to doing cool stuff for the sake of cool stuff. Um, you look at the Transit Supervan, you look at some of the Mustang stuff they've done as well. I think as a brand it's realised that people might be going electric and the world is changing but there are still lots of people out there who like doing cool stuff in their cars and like that feeling of performance. So even if it doesn't go into production, I think it's Ford sort of sticking its flag in the ground and even beyond Tesla, just saying, we like doing fun stuff in cars, we know you like doing fun stuff in cars as well, and don't worry, that passion still lives on at Ford, and that can only be a good thing. Well, sticking with the F-150, and we're going to bring it a little bit closer to home now, um, <laughs> we've already talked about what a rough trot it's been for Ford with the F-150 in Australia, and it just got a little bit trickier for them uh, with their second recall in two weeks, uh, a month, whatever it was. Yeah. It's <laughs> not great. Yeah, this one's a stop driving immediately as well. Um, it's related to the steering column, uh, and essentially there are problems with it that mean you could theoretically lose steering in the car. Oh, God. Um, that is how recalls work. They say that the car could catch fire, even though the chances of it are very slim. So Ranger had one of those quite a few years ago, right. if you if you recall, where one caught fire at a pub in a country town, and so they recalled all of them to make a change. So. Which is reassuring, because you want, obviously, cars to be safe. So it's good that they're very particular with it, but just because it could happen doesn't mean it will. I want to make that clear. But, yeah, it's another blow for the F-150s. People want to buy them but can't at the moment because of a stop sale, and those who have actually taken delivery are now being told to stop driving. You've taken my line now, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that. Sorry, great minds think alike. Yeah. Um, it seems like no one, including Ford, will be happy with that. Yeah, so long story short, they when they converted, a company called RMA Automotive does the conversion in Australia, they use the steering components from a Ranger Raptor. Now, uh, Paul actually pointed this out when he did the original review of this, that I don't know how that's going to go long term. The well, Let's just even talk about the base F-150. It's quite a lot longer, it's quite a lot heavier, and it puts out a lot more power than the Raptor does. So it's, um, yeah, it's interesting that that's cropped up so quickly. James, you used to do a bit of PR for Ford. If you're sitting, if you're one of those guys sitting at the PR desk right now, how are you feeling? I'd probably be trying to hide under my desk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in all fairness, I think we've said, we've said this quite a few times now, you know, this is a very important project for them. It's not something that will be any way, shape or form positive. And I think the quicker that they get it sorted, the better. I think that it's a shame that given the extensive local uh, development and all that sort of process that these things have sort of popped up. I guess it is a first generation product in that sense, so these teething issues sometimes happen. But given, you know, Ford has such extensive know-how in pickups and things like that, not just with the Ranger, but globally with F-150. So it's not like they've created this from the ground up. Yes, it's a, a, a remanufacturing program, but the car should still sort of work as a, at a base level. It's, um, it's really a shame. So hopefully the people that uh, being having their cars recalled and not experiencing these issues per se, so at least they're not completely burned if like the steering completely locks up and they go off a corner or something like that. Which, that's yeah, we haven't heard about. Happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's 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 a. They've probably made it sound worse than it is, just to be cautious. 
but yeah, I think it's not not just another series of unfortunate events. I think. I think it's really interesting because we used to see uh, F150s, Chevys, Rams. They were all converted by little sheds out the back of the Gold Coast mostly, um, and there was some really questionable engineering that went on with yeah. those converting them from left to right hand drive. Let's not even talk about how the trims never stayed attached to it. But there used to be things where they would run a chain or a belt to the original steering rack from the steering to wheel on the other side. transfer it across essentially. Yeah, it was very strange things. I guess, like you said, it's good that Ford's picking this up early, mm. but is this not something that you think they would have got in all the testing they claim they did prior to it? Uh, yeah, look, uh, ideally, yes. And I think this is why Toyota has taken the approach it's taken with Tundra, where there's going to be cars on the road for 12 months with owners, but a very limited number, constantly feeding info back to the factory. Um, I suppose you can test for every scenario until you put it into people's hands, in which case they'll invent a million more, right? Uh, and we, we think about this on Car Expert all the time. We'll do all sorts of tests with cars that we have, and then someone will say, I am a left-handed person who's blind in my right eye, I'm five foot four and my son is nine foot six and I need to be able to fit them in the middle rear seat for reasons we don't understand. So I, I think no matter how much testing you do, it's really hard to get it perfect. And partly that's because of the strain that these cars are under, just given they're big, heavy vehicles, you know, driving on rough roads sometimes, but also because everyone uses their cars differently and everyone loads them differently and has different scenarios and it's impossible to plan for all of them. Well, I'd still buy one. Not about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to buy one to start with, so you're well, on your own there, unfortunately. All right, well, speaking of cars that you can or cannot buy, uh, this week we want to talk about the Kia Sorento. I'm not going to ask you to spill any beans on it, but there is a new one that's going to appear in showrooms now. now. <laughs> They're actually on the roads now. If, you, if you're in Melbourne, you'll see them stick it up with the AO yes. stickers. They're driving players and personnel around everywhere, and they look pretty cool. So. Yes, so they look like they drive very well. Mm. Not saying anything more than that. We don't want to get in any trouble. Um, but look, let's say you want a Sorento, or you're thinking about a Sorento, but you get told it's a very long wait time. What would you guys buy as an alternative to the Kia Sorento? James, I'll throw to you first, considering you just stepped out of one this morning. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting segment, and it can really depend on what you desire out of the vehicle or how much of the people carrying capability you need. I think if you're, if you're sold on a Sorento and you really like how it's all presented, you like how the tech's integrated, you like how they dr it drives with, the, you know, with its available options, I think a great alternative is the Hyundai Palisade. Uh, it's a little bit larger and sort of styled a little bit more like a US body on frame, but basically uses the same engines, say a lot of the same tech, and it's that little bit bigger and you can have it with an extra seat. So if you ever have more of the kids soccer team that you need, or footy team that you need to carry along, you've got that extra football team in you <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Or you have family members that might want to tag along and that kind of thing. Um, the Palisade's objectively an excellent vehicle. The new, the latest one has a very annoying speed limit function, which... You have to turn off every single time you start the car. Yes. Yep. Now, some of the newer cars out of the Hyundai Kia Stable are reducing the volume that it comes out at, so it's a little less intrusive, and I'll leave it at that, so I'm not saying anything <laughs> that I'm not going to be saying, but it's, it's definitely a really capable car that sort of sits alone in that price and segment, because to get something that large, you're looking at perhaps, it's, it's that little bit bigger than a Kluger inside, I feel, and even than a Pathfinder, but not quite as big as something like a Mazda CX-90, which is like another um, degree up in terms of price. So I, that, that's probably my pick, because Hyundai's doing some really good stuff at the moment. On that speed limit thing, if they can just get it to work properly with school zones when it's not a school zone, that would be great. 
that that's that's all they need to do to fix it. Even then, <laughs> he's I'm going still, red talking about no, it. No, it makes me so angry. I hate it so much. Um, oh. All right, Scott. Well, before you get in trouble from the police, <laughs> uh, what would you pick instead of a Sorento? Uh, I've got two potentials. One of which is the Toyota Kluger Hybrid. Mm -hmm. um, it's boring. I it's want to another get that out American one as well. It is. <laughs> so it's a fitting choice for you then. Exactly. Yeah. Very very dull and demure. Um, it, yeah, it's dull, but it is efficient in the context of those cars, especially if you're spending a lot of time in the city. It's got a very practical interior, and it being a Toyota, you know that wherever you are, there will be a dealer able to help you. The other one I haven't actually driven yet, but Will stop forward. our colleague, has driven it in Korea and loved it, and it's the new Santa Fe. It looks awesome. It's a very boxy, like a sort of Korean Defender or Discovery almost. Shares some of its bits and pieces with the Sorento, and I'm very interested to drive it when it hits Australia. Yeah. All right, well, look, if uh, any of those cars mentioned, any of the four cars that we've mentioned here are of interest to you, uh, do you know that we have a great platform on our website that can help you get into one of them quicker and for maybe cheaper than you might expect? Head to Google, type in Help Me Car Expert, and uh, follow the link. It'll take you to a page that can help you find a car. We can, you can talk to a consultant that's based in Brisbane, so not somewhere else. You actually talk to a local here. Uh, and we can connect you with a, a range of vetted dealers all across the country to get you into your new car quicker and for maybe cheaper than you might expect. So head to Google, type in Help Me Car Expert, and if you do use the service, uh, leave a comment. Let us know. How was it? We'd love to know. All right, um, this week, you weren't actually part of it, James, but you have driven all the cars we're about to talk about, so you oh, can yes. provide some commentary, I'm sure. But um, Scott went down to Lang Lang with us and made an absolute fool of himself in a hot hatch drag race. Blatantly false, but that's <laughs> all right. Well, if we have to get Paul over here to back it up, we will. But no need. Long story short, we got a uh, Toyota GR Corolla, a, a Honda Civic Type R, a, the new Cupra Leon, correct me if I'm wrong on this, VZX. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, and... Uh, not old, but slightly old Hyundai i30N. Now, the fun part about the Hyundai i30N, it was brought by a friend of car experts, Mel. She brought it down. It was her personal car. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had uh, Mac, one of the guys that works in our accounts department. It wasn't his Civic Type R, but he does own one. So we brought yeah. him down to actually drive it. We put Scott in the Corolla. You can watch the video and see that didn't do very well. I own a Mitsubishi Pajero. It's an all-wheel drive weapon, very similar to the GR Corolla. <laughs> yes, 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 turbocharged. And Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and Paul was in the Leon VZX. Now, surprise, I'm just going to get it straight out. Um, the Cooper won. The Cooper won. Yeah. The Cooper was the quickest across the quarter mile, won a bunch of drag races, won the rolling races. Um, but the i30N was actually the quickest from zero to 100. Now, just to preface this before anyone gets upset, it wasn't on a drag strip. It was on a, a bit of a dirty surface. But I think that lends a lot to how good that i30N really is. The Civic Type R was actually the slowest, which yeah. is No a great surprise. surprise given its front wheel drive. Yeah, and it just spun its tires all day long, which is yeah. what we know they do. But guys, um, Let's just talk about these four cars a little bit. I'm going to go straight to James. <laughs> because just bypass we, Captain I've, Slow over I've here. got some things to get off my chest, yeah. so we'll you're probably to you. best to... We'll get back to you, but James is our resident Volkswagen Group expert. So, um, and I know you love the Leon. Yeah, I do. Uh, I really so, enjoyed the Leon. But yeah, tell us a little bit about the Leon. Well, the Leon is an interesting car because uh, in terms of how the Volkswagen Group is set up, while they use a lot of common things in terms of platforms, engines and the like, they sort of bake in different personalities to a lot of their different cars. And so Cupra, which is currently sort of still a subdivision of Seat, which is like Sp the Spanish brand that's sort of like the youthful, sporty one, as opposed to Skoda being the older, practical one. Um, they've always had this sort of, you know, 
spicy Spanish flavour to them where they're really engaging to drive and perhaps more in line with something like the Ford Focus or, you know, a, a Civic that, you know, are more geared towards driver enjoyment rather than just balanced comfort or outright practicality. And so with the, the Cupra Leon, it's in this particular spec, it's like the version of the Golf GTI that we don't get. So for those who don't know, there's a version of the Golf GTI overseas called the Club Sport, which has a 221 kilowatt engine and is like super fast and almost like their track type yeah. R sort of equivalent. And the Leon takes that drivetrain and perhaps the, the leaning towards that athletic and driver enjoyment aspect, but sort of wraps it in this sexy sleeper style body. And it's, uh, it's a really unique offering in the segment because, you know, the the Type R and the GR Corolla, while they're a little bit more hardcore, are manual only. And so it's sort of a, a really nice match for the i30N and even the outgoing Megane RS in a way that the standard Golf GTI might not be. And so I was really interested to see, even though I didn't get to drive it um, in the drag race myself, to see how it compared to these cars because it got some really established performance vehicles in that lineup. And, you know, the, it was probably a car, the Cooper's probably a car that a lot of people still haven't heard of uh, compared to something like the Formentor. A lot of people are not even really buying them by volume to volume sort of comparison. So it's, um, I guess it's a really cool achievement that it really in the real world stacked up against all of those competitors. Well, one thing is we, we certainly don't rig any of these drag races. We don't set it up to someone is better off. Uh, we were all very surprised by the layout. Well, it had pull in it, so that's uh, yeah, not that's... rigging it at all. <laughs> very true. Um, um, uh, Scott, all right, let's talk about your Corolla. Come all on, right, let's talk on. about it. Go on. I would like to say first up that this criticism is unfounded because <laughs> manual, all-wheel drive, very boosty small engine, and it was the fastest off the line in each of these drag races. Not in, uh, when we did zero to 100 times of it. Well, no, so the fact I got it off the line so quickly should be applauded by e each and every one of you. Well, when you're getting off the line when Sean says one. <laughs> That's the thing. So Paul actually accused me of that, and then we had to go back and check the tapes, and we just found that. F1 driver-like reactions. Besides the point, um, GR Corolla is the one of those cars on that test that I wouldn't buy. Uh, I have driven it on the road now, and driving it in the drag race, it's impressively quick, for one. It's got some really cool tech to it. But each of those other three cars feels a bit more polished. The Civic Type R is just as much fun, but I think it's just it's a nicer car to live with and drive every day. It's got a nicer shift to it. The Cupra is another step up again in terms of polish, right? It's, it's a very lovely Volkswagen product in a lot of ways. And then that i30N is really raucous. It sounds filthy in the it's test. It's the best sounding it's car awesome. by far, yes. Um, it's got a lot of customization you can do with the drive modes and that sort of thing. The GR Corolla, although I get the homologation rally special thing they're going for, it just doesn't blow me away with any of it. It was quite slow uh, in our rolling drag race because there's quite a lot of turbo lag, for example. Um, it just... It just felt a step off the others. And even putting the fact that manuals, when they're driven by someone like me who is not a professional race driver, are definitely going to be slower than a DSG, I couldn't really care less about that in a straight line if it gave me more. And it just hasn't given me that little bit more to encourage me into it. Now, I'm just curious. With the GR Corolla, and I don't think you can do this with any of the others because they're all front-wheel drive, so you can't. Yeah. Um, the GR being all-wheel drive, you can change the torque outputs between... More the front, more yeah. the rear, or 60, 40, 70, 30, or 50, 50. Did you find that made any difference whatsoever to your ability to drive it fast? <laughs> <laughs> That's a leading question. Um, no. Um, I did fiddle around with the settings on it, and the deciding factor in how quickly it got off the line was how many revs you launched it with and how quickly you came off the clutch. So 
I know you had a good laugh at some of my early practice runs because there was too much clutch and then not enough clutch and there was either clutch smoke or bogging down. Yeah, we got a call from Toyota earlier. They said there's yes. not enough clutch left in it either. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to whoever's driving that after me. Um, the, the deciding factor ultimately was, yeah, how consistently you could get it up around four and a half or 5,000 revs and then getting off the clutch quickly but smoothly so that it hooked up nicely. And obviously you saw in the races, the last one in particular, it got off the line really well. And then when you watch the onboard of Paul doing it, it's similar. Um, but once you've got it off the line, the first second, second shift, excuse me, it sounded like Sean Connery. Um, no matter how fast I tried to do it, it's still not nearly as quick as a DSG. There's still power interruption. There's still human error at play. It just shows the, uh, the amount of sort of gap there is between a really clever modern dual clutch transmission and even someone who maybe thinks they can drive a manual well. And I do want to point out as well, I know we've put a lot of Mickey on the Corolla. It is actually by far the smallest engine. It's a 1.6 litre three cylinder yeah. and all the rest oh, is two. It's incredibly litre, impressive what they've done with it, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, you mentioned something with it before. You said it's a homologation car, but I'm sorry. I yeah. can't understand what it's homologating because if you talk about rally, the Yaris is the rally car now. Yeah, I've sort of fallen into a lazy trope there. It feels like a homologation right. car because it's a very similar thing to the Yaris, but it's not homologating anything, you're right. It's actually developed because the Yaris they thought was too small for America. So the Corolla, obviously they sell here, they sell in Europe as well, but ultimately it was the one that they wanted to sell in the States because the Yaris is too little over there. Okay, now I know we've talked about the Civic Type R before, um, but I, I just want to bring up the i30 Yanks. We've never talked about that on the podcast before. So James, tell us a little bit about that just to give the viewers at home a bit of an understanding to the context of it. Yeah, so I think I covered the actual initial reveal of that car all those years ago. ago. <laughs> it's a long time ago, yeah. And basically it's, uh, it's an Albert Bierman special with Hyundai, isn't it? Basically to take on everything from the Golf GTI to the Civic Type R and everything in between. And, you know, the, it was the first N Division product and they pretty much got it right from the get-go. It's a really fun fast car it won't ever be the fastest it's not the quickest around the track in in our uh, various lines of work we've all sort of experienced it yeah. in different ways and this latest iteration with the new eight speed dual clutch really made it a much faster proposition like it's doing a sub six seconds zero to 100 time with just front wheel drive and a lot of power and well we beat us claim by a tenth which yeah, is exactly. Which is a very Volkswagen-y sort of yes. trait as well, where you know the German brands often underquote their um, performance figures because they want to make sure that anyone can achieve them. Well, and our time is 0.2 of a second slower than the claim for the uh, Cupra. Well, there so, you go. Yeah. So it's a, it's no, but the i30N is sort of a little bit harder and you know a bit more raucous, like you said before. It's got an awesome exhaust, and I think what they really, what Hyundai really wanted to do was make it all about having fun and you know bringing that smile to your face when you drive it, not just on the track, but every day. And that's definitely something that I can attest to having driven not just the hatch, but the sedan, as well as the Kona N that shares a lot of the mechanicals. They're just, they're stupid fun. Mm. And they're still, you know, the i30 that you know and love. It's still got, you know, decent sized boots, got this stupid strut brace across the back of it. So if you ever have to put a IKEA cabinet in you the back, you might have to, brace yeah, you have to take it out or just like lay it on top. But, you know, it's, it's getting on in age a little bit, but it's still got some real charm about it. And I think, you know, props to Mel for launching it the way she did, because she got off the line pretty well and almost won the race two or three times. Mm. And that car now is quite, quite a bit older than the other ones yeah. on that test. So it blew me away. I expected it to be slow, and it just wasn't. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the fact is, it is the oldest. It was the fastest to 100. It wasn't the fastest to a quarter mile. The Cooper was. Um, but, yeah, I mean, 
Bloody impressive. impressive. Yeah. So, okay, let's, uh, it might be a little hard for you to decide, but um, if you were walking away with one of these cars, which one would you pick? James, you can go first. It's hard because I actually really like all of them. <laughs> I've, driven, I've driven all of them in my time. I really loved the Civic last year. It was our shared pick for the year last year. Um, I have, when I think about what I would do day to day or what I would want out of my own car from day to day, I think the Leon is similar enough to my Golf with a bit more capability and performance that perhaps that would be like a nice logical upgrade. But I do really love that Civic. The Corolla has its own character because it's that little bit, you know, rough around the edges and sort of like that race car, but body in white sort of thing. It's it's really cool. And the i30N is just like an old faithful that continues to put a smile on your face many years after it's had its um, prime. I don't know. I really just don't know what I'd pick. <laughs> cool. Well, James has relisted all of the cars. Yeah, Scott should be yeah. in if you to pick one. Civic Type R for yeah. me. I, I just sticking with it. I love that it's big inside. I love that it's fun to drive. I love it's got a great manual. Done. Fair enough. All right. Um, let's uh, let's wrap this podcast up as we go over a bit longer than normal. But uh, we'll go out to our picks of the week. So Scott, you can go first. What have you got this week? Uh, I've got. I sent this to you. Uh, three guys driving drift carts around an office, uh, and they're all in perfect sync, like they're in a late '90s, early 2000s Japanese motoring video. It just looks like awesome fun. And where we work has a big Costco that's shutting down fairly soon. We want when they take all of the shelves and the the bits and pieces out, set up our own internal drift Grand Prix there with these carts. I think indoor carts would be great. It'd be great It'd be fun. Great side business for a cart expert. There you go. We've already got the name. So. It out. Well done. Good to go. Just add a little extra red T behind yeah, yeah. the Easy. Crew. Okay. Easy. We're well on our way. Uh, James, what's your pick this week? I found a really cool reel on Instagram, which is from a Dubai supercar dealership. And they were unwrapping this special edition 812. I can't for the life of me. It's like the new TDF thing. Competizione. Yeah. yeah. And so it's this bright yellow one that comes from underneath this red Ferrari branded cover. And then he goes, the, the guy that works in the dealership turns on all the switches and, you know, it's like a bit of ASMR and then turns the car on, revs it and just plays with all the modes as well. And there's no talking or dialogue or anything like that. It's just quick cuts between all these different views and it's just really cool. Like it's a bright yellow Ferrari that you wouldn't normally see one of these in that colour and just the sound it makes. Far out V12s are cool. <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, my pick is... I know I know I've sort of mocked a little bit, but the, the new McLaren F1 car was revealed. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of the same, same, but I really like it. I think there's something about that papaya that just looks fantastic. Um, yeah, it's just a good looking car. Uh, I think. Hopefully it's fast. Let's, yeah, fingers that's crossed. For, um, yeah, but thankfully we've got two Aussies on the grid in F1 this year, which starts again very soon. So. Fingers crossed we can get up there a little bit. Um, guys, that pretty much brings us to the end of this week. Uh, have you got any final thoughts before we wrap up? I've got to go to a meeting, so let's wrap it up. Oh, OK. <laughs> you, James, any, any final joking. thoughts you want to leave us with? Um, I'm just keen to being invited to the next drag race and hopefully um, we start a new segment called Car Expert Celebrities Read Mean Tweets. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun, actually. There is something in that. Yeah, I think we've got enough comments on YouTube we can definitely make that work. All right, guys, well, thank you very much for coming and sitting down with me again. Um, don't forget, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing another Q&A session. So um, leave a comment or email us, podcast at Car Expert. Uh, send us a message on Instagram or Facebook, however you want to get in touch with us. And ask us some questions about what's coming in 2024, because the guys are very keen to answer Absolutely. them for you. Uh, but yeah, that's it for this week. We're going to wrap it up. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and we'll see you next time.